see everything the movie podcast where we review rank and riff on every single film in the criterion collection i'm anthony and this is a crying british orphan sean wow we said that you were an orphan but you're really sounding like you're the son of beaker from the muppets on today's yeah. a, on a, today's he's, a, he's a, the he's an even worse father than you would expect by looking at him and that's saying something on today's episode we are going to cover a lot of movies about uh childhood and and trying to discover your place in the world while also being uh totally crushed under the weight of having to provide for oneself and those are david lean's great expectations david lean's and Oliver Twist. Also, you know, there's this guy like uh, Charles Dickens. He also wrote both of those. Uh, we also Fuck got him. <laughs> Fuck Charles Dickens. He's nothing to me. Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho and John Huston's Wise Blood. Sean, how do you feel about today's movies? We, 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 these four movies we chose because they are all literary adaptations. And I quickly realized after watching all these movies that I have not read a single one of these books that are being adapted. So speak yeah, on that. I didn't realize, I knew that you were homeschooled, you had mentioned it, but I didn't realize to what extent. Oof, that um, is so, that's so rude well you know hey you did a good job fooling me for what it's worth <laughs> i've uh i've got a 50 percent hit right here i've read great expectations and i've read wise blood but um i mean again our themes are always loose here but to say that what was it what was the gus van sant one my own private, my own private idaho. idaho to say that it's an adaptation of henry the fourth is like it's like saying that my impression of donald trump is an adaptation it's a super loose adaptation. It is, it's, it's generously really just a, an adaptation. From the ground up, a different guy, but you can identify it somewhat. Once somebody points it out to you, you can give a resounding, yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right, then let's start off here. So David Lean is a director that we've talked about before. You may remember him as the director of Summertime. He also directed, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge Oh shit, Fly. I didn't realize that. Uh, well, here you go. You're gonna you're gonna have to encounter him again, uh, Sean. I I took a class on David Lean in in college, and so I one of the movies that I was required to watch was Great Expectations. This was the one I had seen before of today of this week's picks, uh, and I and I enjoyed it. Uh, but I, in general, I feel that it is probably the least david lean movie these two movies because they basically are just very straight adaptations of the charles dickens work i i think that uh that might be because their influence has spread to all charles dickens adaptations up uh, you know until now but also i don't know it's it feels pretty straightforward wouldn't you say yeah i would say so i think that the i mean the main thing that they miss is a lot of the 
filler stuff in the middle where Pip is just kind of hanging out in London and dance halls and whatever, like smoking cigars with other 17-year-old guys with syphilis. Like, you're really not missing that much. The other mo- the other adaptation, the other literature, piece of literature that I kept on thinking about when watching both Great Expectations and Oliver Twist it are is, is Pinocchio because stinking Pinocchio basically does both of these things and i i could not get over that let's let's read the little summary Wait, hold on what the fuck are we just gonna go <laughs> just brush on pat what the fuck are you talking about because they smoke cigars in pinocchio is what i was trying to say but it like but in general I pinocchio yes pinocchio is a is a is a story about like what? this little innocent boy who gets pulled uh who gets pulled on in every which way. We'll we'll get into it. We'll get into it. What's All that right. tweet about the guy who's like I the boss baby. Only seen the boss. Baby. Oh, <laughs> giving serious boss baby. I make jokes about like oh this or not even jokes. I say genuinely oh this reminded me of this other thing, and you're like it's because of the boss baby thing <laughs> every week. Shot every week. I'm very rarely incorrect. I just, I don't, I'm clinically unable to miss. One of the great translations of literature into film, David Lean's Great Expectations brings Charles Dickens' masterpiece to robust on-screen life. Pip, Magwitch, Miss Havisham, and Estella populate Lean's magnificent miniature, beautifully photographed by Guy Green and designed by John Bryan. That's it. That's the whole summary. And you know what? Pretty sparse. It's, It's pretty true. It's basically my thoughts on the movie. It's well designed it is well shot and it is basically an adaptation of this book and if you know what this book is then you know the movie (laughs) i don't what else do i have to say so i want to front end this with a little bit of sean Moore. so i had to read great expectations for school for normal boy school where i went with all my friends and everyone there was my friends don't don't let anybody tell you otherwise but for whatever reason, everyone just had a lot of antipathy towards this book. Um, I, I don't, I don't even remember specifically what their complaints were, but um, boring and gay were, were <laughs> kind of the, the prevailing opinions there. But I don't see. Here's the thing, Charles Dickens. I get why he was a popular writer. His prose is, I mean, it's not like incredibly poetically complex or anything but it's entertaining it's jaunty the dialogue goes back and forth you have novel um explanations and phrasings it's it's very readable um for a one of the most virginal high schoolers that you will ever encounter which is me i was just full-on ready for an immaculate conception if i could get pregnant but it (laughs) again that was was what would be immaculate about it that w- that's what would be immaculate about it is the fact that you yep. can't get pregnant not not the other thing well you know <laughs> so um at the end and the teacher was kind of was kind of caught on to this like okay we weren't really all that into it for the most part and by the end uh, the last class that we were talking about she posed a question to everybody okay raise your hand if you actually like this book and peter das poor peter das he was the only one who raised his hand, and I was about to raise mine, because I did and genuinely enjoy the book. But then I saw him doing it, and there was a combination of, I don't want to be the only two guys. I don't want to be in company with Peter Das. Wow. And it would also be so fucking funny if he were the only one. <laughs> so I left him alone. That's a microaggression, um, Sean. <laughs> 
Well, okay, to be fair, he answered back a little bit later um, when I was going to prom with my friends, and he was there too. And he asked me, like, oh, hey, are, are you uh, you also not having a date to prom? And I'm like, yes, sir. And he said, oh, well, looks like I'm in good company. And <laughs> I have never fucking recovered from that. So he owes me. We are, or at the, or we are even. I thought yes, he was going to pull the other thing and he'd be like, and he was going to be like, sucks to be you. You're the only one. I have a date. Bye. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, no, no. He wasn't the, ki- the type of guy who, uh, who gets those double Q's. Let's just say. I think he might still be a moderator on the Bionicle fan fiction. Oh my god. I won't gosh. shout out which one. Because I don't want to blow up his spot like that, but um, you might Bion- know him if you're if you're into that. Bionicle fan fiction sounds like it is. Look, there are no high arts and low arts here. We all acknowledge that all no, arts can I, transcend I things. I completely disagree with that. Um, the art I like is high, and the art that everyone else likes is low. Bionicle fan fiction is the lowest art. <laughs> the lowest one on the totem pole you can't you can't get lower than that listen comic books have been making a rise in recent years (laughs) and you are one step below them i am sorry to say you are out you will not receive a place in heaven if you sit down at a keyboard to write bionicle fan fiction and you were an adult like right now when bionicle doesn't exist then I don't want you listening to this podcast. A lot you might does get not cooties favor from you. you. Goodbye. <laughs> wow. You will not sit at the right hand of anyone in the afterlife. You will burn in the lake of fire. So, <laughs> Great Expectations is way better than Bionicle fan fiction. Um, you know, it's a story because I feel like I should I should pad this out a little bit because the criterion description does not give you much to go on. Uh, it's a story about Pip, a guy who uh, is a, a kid who at one point is nice to a guy who is in prison and also completely separately is favored by this rich woman. And uh, eventually he grows up and there's this r- rich benefactor who gives him the ability to rise above his station as a blacksmith's son or blacksmith's stepson and become uh, a gentleman. And he does so. And it all comes crumbling apart as soon as he learns who his benefactor is. And that's it. That's that's the movie. Yeah, this is our literary adaptation. So I feel like we might as well get service to to that idea and david lean has a couple of ideas on how to translate the page to the screen Mm. and least inventive of which is the way that he opens this movie which is by somebody opening a book and it's not a framing device it's never called back on even at the end Mm -hmm. it's just like well how else to begin it's it's kind of like fairy tale in one sense the oliver twist one is worse which is that they get the so okay the best adaptation of any charles dickens novel that i've ever seen i say as someone who has read one charles dickens novel okay is of course muppet christmas carol and i'm not just saying that because of beaker but it's so good and what's good about it is that Charles Dickens was known for its his amazing descriptive prose and how awesome he was able to paint a picture with words. And when you watch a movie, 
spoilers, there's a lot of pictures. Like, there are, you know, about 24 of them going by your eyes every single second. Or 48, if it's good. So there's no need to hear stinking Charles Dickens be like, and yes, and Molly was dead as a doornail. But the way that Muppet Treasure Island gets around that is by having Gonzo play Charles Dickens and kind of narrate the thing, but also comment on what's going on at the same time, make a bunch of jokes, you know, do his Gonzo thing. And this movie instead tries to get around that by, right, you know, opening the book and saying like, oh, we're welcome to this thing. And then have these on-screen titles that are just like, and then Pip went off to the city where the city was this thing. And I'm like, oh, come on. Just the laziest thing in the world. Just trying to like shove some. It feels like when you, you're in a class and you have to read a book for class. And then afterwards they're like, and this is the best adaptation. And then they show the movie and you're like, well, you mean it was the most adapt adaptation it's just the most straightforward you know text to screen they didn't write a script they all just were carrying around copies of the books all the time kind of thing and and to fill in the gaps they just have these little titles that are just throwing on some of the charles dickens prose and it's it's so lazy people like book people love to complain about shit not being adapted faithfully or the book being better shout out to my mother love you (laughs) they're just such completely different mediums that i think it's just kind of infantile to like complain and also it's just like such a hack complain about anything i can't really imagine that thought that thought crossing your mind sure and you thinking like this is novel enough to even you know fill the world with the mention of but like i think i touched on it before is like the idea that film and book have book. very different competencies very different things that they're good at very different things that they're going for Agreed. and they're tools right tools to achieve different emotional states mm-hmm. you know novels or i guess books in general but they can explore things in a kind with a kind of depth and complexity that movies have to it's not that they can't match it right. but they have to take a different way around it. and but film has this right which i agree with momentum and yep. emotional narrative then right it's but here's the thing there is something to be said for a movie that you can watch and write a book report without <laughs> needing to uh without needing to pick up a damn single word of the dog shit english language sure <laughs> and it's, it's entertaining enough in its own right sure um i i think that so my oh, mother's favorite movie. Yeah. Some of my mother's favorite movies are the bbc adaptations of all the jane austen books and those are just straight adaptations. They're usually they're they're not even movies. Like there's a Pride and Prejudice one that's like twelve hours long, and you have to watch it like it like you have to switch out the discs like it's thinking the Titanic on VHX VHS. I read that book earlier this year. I don't think the book is twelve hours long. No, no, I read that book in one night be, the the day before it was due, and that was the that was the, that morning I knew hatred when I showed up to class and the and the teacher was like, you know, you guys can have another week on it. I know that not all of you guys read it. <laughs> but wait, hold on. Was this also a homeschool thing? Do you like- yes, this was also a homeschool thing. I wait. you go to classes. I can't explain to you homeschooling right now, Sean. Oh, but, like, that's such a weird thing to be like, oh, I went to class, and the teacher said, instead of just saying, I went downstairs, and my mom... No, 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 no. Do you also have to pretend that There were classes, Sean. Like, actual classes where I left. 
my house. I can't explain this to you right now. But you couldn't go to regular school. Sean! You don't understand. No, I don't. A truer thing was never said. So, okay. We don't have much to say anyway. Let's, Let's dig into this. Sure. When you're homeschooled, sometimes you join what is called a homeschool cooperative, which is a group of a bunch of different parents getting together with their kids, and then they'll teach classes. Those cla- those parents will teach the classes based on their experience. So, for example, some of the other parents of homeschooled kids were, uh, I don't know, like editors for different magazines. They'd teach a writing class. We had uh, one person who was... Uh, who had who had graduated with like a master's in some kind of science and so we had it like a science class featuring them and it you know, you would take classes it would ju- be work basically the same as regular school with two exceptions one is that you would have ultimate control over what classes your child takes you can so i took spanish there for four years and or for five years i think and uh that was really important to my mother, whereas like learning any other language was not. Um, but also, you uh, in general, like a, a parent has a lot of control over exactly uh, what gets taught and what doesn't get taught. And also, we had uh, it was like a weekly thing. You don't go there every single day. You go there once a week or maybe twice a week for for high schoolers, and and that's it. That that was what a homeschool group is. And, uh, so also, so that's what I meant when I had, I had an English class where we read Pride and Prejudice and I showed up the day that I was supposed to do that and it, the teacher waved it away. That was it. It seems like a lot of fuss when you could just like. Because the public school system sucks. No, nah, not really. People always say that, but it was all right. I went there and I turned out fun. I mean, it sucks to, like, go to school because school sucks, but, I mean, I feel like when people say, like, the public school system sucks, like, 95% of the time, they're a kid from the fucking suburbs who are like, I didn't like that I had to go to school and couldn't play video games. Like, whenever you hear that, it's not from, like, an inner city kid who's like, yeah, there was just, like, a big hole in the roof, and there was one book that we all had to share, and the the gym was just fifteen percent plus. I think that the com- I think the complaint is the same, but the specifics are different. I definitely hear that from inner city kids that that like, well, my school was even worse than like like you would have gone to a suburban school. I went to like a stinking school where like we had to worry about you know some kid brought a knife to class one time and whatever like that kind of stuff. One time, you know? Peter Doss brought a, brought a big hunting knife to <laughs> math class to peel a cucumber. And immediately got suspended. I have he just a... walked up in the middle of class <laughs> and started feeling a cucumber with a fake knife and instantly suspended. I had uh, Sean. We brought we. There was this one kid who I will not name because I can't. I put them on blast right now because uh, he's you. Uh, he brought two knife. He he brought to the homeschool group knives on a regular basis, and then between classes, when we were like hanging out in sort of like a study hallish area or whatever, he would like bring out his butterfly knife and do tricks and stuff. And I wonder about that kid sometimes. He's married. <laughs> oh no! So nineteen-year-old military man married. 
kind of guy. I, not military. This is this is a side bit from the guy who is military. He was more of the like, I know all the like bad websites. I know like how. <laughs> Dude. I'm not just so fucking. <laughs> no, I mean, like he was—he was the guy who like would stay up until like three in the morning, and then the next day come in and tell you that he was up until three in the morning, and then he would as if it was Fuck, something to so brag, as if it was something to brag about. Like, that's such a good sentence. <laughs> it's it's so funny, like 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 the shitty bad kids who don't know where to get drugs or too yeah. scared to smoke cigarettes. So sure. the things that they have to brag about are are always like yeah i stayed up too late hey you want to see me hold my breath for too long and go red pretty crazy You're hey you want to see right. me run into this tree and break my tooth off not really man who are you trying to impress i i will say he i, I because i'm not saying any specifics i can get away with saying basically anything right now he definitely uh was growing weed behind our church at some point it was oh, okay so eventually was, he did figure it out. He figured it out. Eventually he, he figured, figured out, out how to be listen, bad. But it took a look, long time. It, mostly it was just a lot of like picking the locks on doors at, at like different places that he well, shouldn't yeah, have been I mean, picking the locks on. That's another homeschooler thing. I think it's fair to say where like you you don't have other bad kids for a frame of reference. Like you have to figure sure. it out for yourself. And there are some growing pains. You, I guess you could say he was the, the artful Dodger. Oh crap. We're not even on Oliver twist yet. <laughs> no. Um, so we both, so regarding great expectations, I think we both had a similar complaint, which mm-hmm. is that the cast is not, it's not a load bearing cast. And Maybe? David Lean doesn't seem very interested in it- getting that much out of it it might be fair to say that this is the worst cast i've seen that we've had so far except for maybe the andy warhol uh, <laughs> movies the the paul morrison i don't movies. know what you're talking about the the uh, you don't know what i'm no. talking about the flesh oh no and... i know flesh for frankenstein <laughs> and blood for dracula i just don't know where you get off saying that the 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 guy who walked in and is like the italian from the bronx (laughs) right exactly yo i'm from i'm from the fucking streets of sicily and i love the fucking mets uh hey i'm swimming here in the canals of venice (laughs) oh get your hands off the the grapes in the vineyard (laughs) yo we got these palooks up on the piazza (laughs) so do you, I I think that that is probably our number one worst cast so far, but this is this is pretty bad too. I think Alec Guinness is good, and I think that that sounds stupid because it's like, oh yes, Alec Guinness, the one I know, the one person right. whose like name I could name before researching the cast for this movie. Uh, I, I don't know. I think he gives a per- perfectly good performance as like the best friend that kind of feels a little off he, he he feels vapid he feels like he's untarnished in a way and i, Kinda, I, I think yeah. he's good i, uh, I, I feel good like it's, it's to me it's like less that herbert pocket is vapid but that mm-hmm. he's you know he's a poncy kind of rich boy who ultimately gets put to the test and he passes the test mm-hmm. there's yeah sure i, I want to say from whatever call from the book there's a lot more emphasis on the the magwitch aspect here to kind of make it a little bit more thrilling a little bit telling which i think is generally pretty pretty well put but i mean the efforts to make it like a story about like adventure or whatever 
Mm-hmm. That's that's not primarily what I'm interested in. I think that genuinely, and I, I really like this about the book too, but the stuff with Miss Havisham and Estella is like genuinely incredibly interesting. Like they're both very weird characters. Estella especially. And she's tough to make work on screen because there's a lot of push and pull of like, okay, to what extent is she actually being dictated by Miss Havisham? Is she, you know, genuine in these feelings? Does she feel resentment? Is she relishing in it? Is she like kind of scared and unsure? How sympathetic are we to, to be about her? Right. Um, and this, neither of the actresses seem really quite up to that task, mm-hmm. to put it kindly. Um, which is a little bit disappointing because I thought those were, um, I thought that was a, a very interesting part of the book that I felt kind of went underrated and underappreciated in, uh, in my class. We watched the more recent adaptation of this, of this book. The Alfonso um, Cuaron, Gwyneth Paltrow films. one? Uh, I don't know, actually. I think it was like a made for TV one, but, but one oh. of them. And, um, one of the main complaints that a guy in, a, in my class had to kind of give you a, an idea of where our headspace is at. Is public school, again, public was, school. Yeah, is that Estella wasn't hot enough. Um, if they're talking about the Great Expectations, one that has Gwyneth Paltrow, then yeah, okay, sure. Fair. I, I mean, think he was talking about weird... the younger one. Ooh. Ooh. I mean, to be fair, we were 16. Ooh. All right, fair enough. Okay. All right, that's okay. You guys were 16. It's, it's still that's okay. okay. That's, by the way, that's going to be the new Always See Everything segment. We go down the list of female cast members and we go seven, <laughs> three, five, five, eight, four, two. Fine. As long as we can t- give, we could both agree Miss Havisham's a 10. <laughs> yup. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that in general, my my Estella reading is, man, I wish I had read the book because I feel like there's more there and there's not a lot given. I, I like the ending. I think that the weird way that he gets to save her from the comforts of money is appropriate. I think it's generally a movie about like how at a certain point of richness, you just can dictate other people's lives in sort of a godlike way. You can just create entire personalities and life goals and uh, virtues out of, you know, whatever orphan happens to pass you by. And I, I think that the ending being sort of a rejection of that of, of, and creating something new is uh, appropriate. And I think it's really cool. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, a lot I, of again, I, stuff about like using money to just completely dictate somebody's life and become their God. Like that, a lot of that stuff is kind of the, what I do. Yeah. my daily life i mean i do just want to comment on i mean, this will kind of be our bridge here so mm-hmm. great expectations has a lot more to do with the pastoral british like the the marshes and the rivers and these kind of dark gloomy like downcast like right. a lot of tree branches silhouetted against clouds of fog and, and his looks like a circle of hell Right. Oh so my goodness. Like, not again. I... No, Sean, not another per- time where you're like, actually, this is movies about hell, though. It's about descending into another circle. Hell is hell. cool. I'm sorry. <laughs> hell is cool and demons are cool. And every okay. movie should remind me of them. Wow. <laughs> but uh, are you you were in hell, Sean. Let's not forget, canonically, you've been to hell. You fought you fought the final boss and you you kind of thought it was a little lame. Underpowered. Yeah. 
and I put John Lennon back there where he belongs. Yeah, or I think I, actually, I think I actually erased him from the cycle of comic rebirth. I have no idea I exactly what happened, but you know, I mean, these things happen to me every day. You know, another day in the life. But um, <laughs> on to Oliver Twist. Like we <laughs> we move on to the kind of like it, it does a lot more with the urban aspect. Mm. Like in the beginning, when we have Mrs. Twist going into Old Yarnum. Um, we see like a little bit of trees, a little bit of like the gale and like the fury of nature. But once we get into the buildings, it's what I really liked about it is it it does a great job of showing us this era of London through the eyes of a child, mm-hmm. kind of the the experience of being a child. Like everything is scary and imposing. You've got like and large big, yeah. and large like shots from the rafters of these big towering walls and castles everything's so imposing that shot that they keep using of like the reminded me of like coruscant (laughs) there's the big dome in the the background and there's the bridge it's and it threw me off because i'm like yeah this is like a movie about navigating the world as a as a child through their eyes kind of putting you back in that headspace Mm -hmm. where everything is scary there's something shadowy around every corner and then the main character of this movie is in 32 percent of it <laughs> mr then, o- oliver twist uh let's say is not the i i guess he's the protagonist of the movie the the movie kind of gets bored with him and then decides hey we, we introduced alec guinness as like a jewish stereotype right let's let's follow up on that let's let's see what we can do Let's get really nasty with how offensive we can be. I, Even I th- at the time, this had to be like, come on, man. I, I have no idea. It might have been, it, it's, you know, so much of what we talk about when we talk about old school Hollywood tends to be about how there was a certain anti-Semitism that existed there and that it was weirdly at odds with the people who were controlling what came through the studio system. This is not a Hollywood picture, if I'm not mistaken. This is a British film, but uh, it's it's still pretty weird to see. Uh, Sean, why don't you take us into the, I'm sure, very, very descriptive description from oh, Mr. Criterion hold on. this week. Let me clear my throat. <clears throat> Let me get a drink of water. Oh, great. This is going to be, it's going to be a big one, guys. Let's get this into it. It's going to be fucking insane. I don't know if y'all are ready for this. Expressionistic noir photography suffuses David Lean's Oliver Twist with a nightmarish quality, fitting its bleak industrial setting. In Dickens' classic tale, an orphan wends his way from cruel apprenticeship to den of thieves in search of true love. Here, Alec Guinness is the quintessential Fagin, his controversial performance fully restored in Criterion's <laughs> digital trends. So even at the time, people were like, listen, <laughs> listen, Alec, we, we love your enthusiasm, but you gotta cut us a break. Like 75% of the guys who are cutting checks in the film industry um, <laughs> are, are taking this a little bit too close to home. I, I think it's really funny too, the way that they're like, we restored his controversial performance. <laughs> like that's the part. They didn't Every say like, inch of David his Lean's giant beautiful. prosthetic nose. <laughs> they didn't say David Lean's beautiful photography. No, they were like, no, no, no. That performance, we really wanted to preserve that. We have enhanced the PNG of the happy merchant and added a feature where you can see him rubbing his hands together. Now in 4K, every single wart. <laughs> we have compiled as a companion piece 
a set of the most offensive Wojaks. Oh my deemed gosh. too awful even for Gab. <laughs> and we have presented them as a companion. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about Pinocchio movies. These are movie this movie is about a little boy who wants to be good. And he's corrupted because, you know, it's hard to be good. And so when he like runs into Fagin, when he runs into all these people, he's like, I wanna I want a family. I wanna have like a father. And then Pinocchio, you know, he can't be good. And so Oliver Twist, you know, he runs into things and he can't be good. And then the movie kind of takes off on its own. And it becomes not a Pinocchio story. It becomes a story of, like, all these people scrambling at the bottom. I don't know why I went in and out of that voice there. I was about <laughs> to acknowledge. Nope. I also want to just briefly acknowledge the fact, and I mean, are you trying to hit me back for the Osmosis Jones thing? Is the idea, is you saying a Pinocchio movie like it is a concept? Is you saying that revenge for me doing that are you <laughs> okay, trying no to no okay there? okay a pinocchio movie is like a frankenstein movie where you have this character who is presented and they're like look at this character this character is innocent and the world the society out there they're gonna corrupt them and they're gonna realize that the world it ain't so good that's gonna be and then the movie's gonna end and hopefully they'll have continued to keep their innocence their their virtuous you know purity of of childhood and youth aglow by the end, or else, you know, there's going to be some bad consequences. And even if they do, there will still be bad consequences because it's, it's the world, it's society that corrupts them. And that's the point. That, that's what I mean when I say a Pinocchio story or a Frankenstein story, you know? You can't get mad at me when I do it. I, but you're saying your Osmosis game. Jones thing is always like, this is a movie with a lot of characters and they like work together. <laughs> like no, that's like... it's about the org. It's about an organic, interconnected system <laughs> where all things are distinct but interdependent. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> that is what you said. I'm sorry. I'm fucking up so bad today. Uh, I... so overall, I think I think this one's a lot cleaner. Sure. Um, we have a lot. I mean, the cinematography, noir. I can see a little. But oh, I see it a I lot, and when you're talking about expressionistic, you know, I, whenever everyone says expressionistic and or noir, oh, oh, no, 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 I don't necessarily see noir and expressionism in the same way. Sean, we gotta watch some Doctor. We gotta watch some Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, some Nosferatu. We've gotta watch some German expressionism. You know this? I know about expressionism. You should. I just don't really see it. If we're talking about like film noir, mm -hmm. you know, like I wouldn't necessarily put Fritz Lang's Denis Belungen and sure. like there you go, fucking Double Indemnity at all within the same category. Like they're, I, they're good for different reasons. It's the idea that noir is the Americans looking at German expressionism and kind of just grabbing what they wanted from it and make using it to make very normal, like normal quote unquote stories. Making we made detective stories out of like monster movies that the Germans were making, you know, Dark, like Cabinet Doctor Caligari, whatever Nosferatu. It's like we have vampires, we have like these things. They like you know eat your flesh, and so the world it's gonna be like the our world, but it's gonna be twisted. It's gonna look like a like it's gonna look like a Tim Burton movie or whatever, right? And then what we took <laughs> from that, there's gonna be a guy named Tim Burton <laughs> born in twenty years. Yeah, and, and his movies are gonna look a little something like this. Well, he obviously stole a lot from that, but he yeah. did that to not have he 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 took the German expressionism uh, 
out of you know noir and or, and stopped it but noir movies are just that us looking at those and being like got it okay cool us as americans is what i'm saying got it cool uh long shadows does that sound good like when it's when it's scary should it be dark and when it's not scary it should be brighter that sounds good like that's what i mean noir it has its has its roots in doing that, in pulling those things from German expressionism, and so I sure, totally can if, see. So when when you're like, oh, I you're going to say that, then it seems to me like cut to the quick, and don't be like, oh, the noir thing. Like it's not a noir thing; it's an expressionist thing. Sure, yeah. If they're both, if they're both derivations, then why not name the thing that they're all ultimately being? Fair enough. I I think that Great Expectations has this one shot of there's one shot of Pip like as he first comes into the city where there's one building where the windows make no freaking sense where the windows are on two are supposed are somehow like on two different planes that could not connect. Like it seems like one half of the house has different places for each of its stories than the other half of the house if that makes any sense and oliver twist does a little bit more of that where yeah i, I think it's a little bit more expressionist than it is noir but where, where it, it pervades the actual production as opposed to just simply the lighting but but yeah i, yeah. I think urban versus pastoral is, is the big thing yeah you, you, you yeah I, I think Great Expectations also does that thing where they're like, oh, he's going from the, quote, pastoral to the urban. And, like, he takes this ride and he's looking around. It's like the city and, like, bells play. Like, dong, 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 dong. Right? And it's like, oh, wow, I'm in the city. London, I'm a city a on the move. Right, exactly. You know, hey, hey, yeah, boy. What, why are we talking like this? But so, whereas Oliver Very Twist busy is, like, town. just busy town. Just grime and just starts at, the, at that place, you know? More or less. More or less. Yeah. So, as as far as the story goes here, I feel like it's got maybe a little bit less momentum than Great Expectations. We've got... I mean, it, it's kind of like a fairy tale, right? I think a little bit more so than the former, just mm. because you've got, like, more comical, over-the-top villains, sure. I think. You, you don't really have that as much in Great Expectations. Whereas here you have Fagin, who is like a, like a comic, like an anti-Semitic evil wizard. And then <laughs> you've got like the, and he's like the emperor. And then you've got, you know, Darth Vader, who's Bill, whatever, who's like, just kind of like a, just, just a, a, mean a classic guy. big, the quintessential mean guy. <laughs> just a mean, nasty guy. But he has and a dog. And the dog does, is like, yeah. The dog is the best part of the movie. I like the way that they cut to it when he's. Wow, I can't believe I just walked myself into that sentence. I like the way they cut to the dog when he's beating his wife. But no, yep. actually, though, that, I mean, it is. It feels really terrifying because you're not watching the act you're watching how the act feels which is oh my gosh i don't want to look at this let me run away from this i can't also like the dog doesn't know it's fake the dog's not acting the dog's freaking out sure sure and they set that up earlier too with like every time when they when they first capture oliver and the dog tries to run away because like he's like wrestling with them or whatever that's great he ends up being the most important part of the story I, I like the little touches that David Lean has to adapt this into a movie. I, I like the, the, like you said, the expressionist sort of lighting. I love the, the use of... I think a lot you, of really the, great silhouettes. 
yes, the use of silhouettes, the use of shadows, the use of of these panning shots that I really like where he had like when he has that one character talk to the 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 woman whose name I'm forgetting she talks to the guy right below the right by the water and there's this tunnel and they slowly pan over to where the tunnel is and there's the artful dodger hiding in the shadows just going like ooh I'm listening I'm he's sure listening oh no if only she would turn around right and and I like that bit. I I think that it's I think that David Lean does really. I think this is the better between if you're just talking David Lean, Oliver Twist is better. But I think that uh, Great Expectations is better as a movie because I think that it's a better book. I think that it's a better story. I think it's better told. I think Oliver Twist feels rambling and kind of doesn't know what to do with itself at the end. Like you said, it kind of trails off, loses its protagonist and feels like it's trying to shove too many ideas together. You know, I, I'm sure that someone who had to read this in high school has a lot to say on it and probably can dissect it way more than I can because they saw this or read this first before seeing it and are able to get all the context for it. But as a movie, I felt that Oliver Twist was kind of a letdown for me. I, I didn't feel like it had that much to say overall about the many things that it was juggling between Oliver Twist's need for familial love, his weird bit of purity and innocence in this area, the way that so many of these characters uh, are, are just trying to leave the life that they've created, but at the same time create their own barriers. I feel like they, they just kind of throw those out there and they're like, look, cool Dickens character, and then uh, and then they don't really follow through on it. And so, uh, I don't know. It was pretty good. It was fine. Yeah. There's interesting things going on in the margins, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it ever fully comes together for me. I would like to maybe read the book and see it a little bit more fleshed out. Like Certainly. Like the stuff with Bill and his lady. I really wish... Nancy? That sounds right. That sounds good. Let's go with Nancy. And Let's if we're wrong, Nancy. no, we're not. <laughs> if we're, we're absolutely not. Never. Not even for a second. Mm. But... She's she's weird because we don't really get a sense of why exactly her heart turns and she suddenly, you know, she feels bad for Oliver. Maybe I missed it and there's, but I, I don't know. It's not really, it's not clear cut at all. Certainly. Um, and maybe this doesn't really feel like the kind of movie where they're trying to slip a lot of things past your notice or do a lot of things very subtle. So I, I think that on the page we could have seen a lot more of a gradual shift there. Yep. Otherwise, it seemed like this is the point of the movie or the story where she needs to become sympathetic. So right. now she's sympathetic. That turnaround I, is so abrupt in this movie. It is, yeah. I'm sure that there's more in the Maybe book. Maybe think I missed something. Yeah, I, I, I almost rewound it, but I'm sure I didn't. It, it's just like two scenes. A couple scenes uh, earlier, I thought she would have beat Oliver, whereas then she was like, no! You all don't understand! It's tough out here on the streets! Yeah, I'm not, um, I mean, that's what I'm always saying, just in general. But, I, there, there's, I think that there's stuff going on there with, like, the concept of motherhood, I guess, it, in general. I mean, the fact that his mother is, like, great sacrifice for him mm-hmm. fagan i think specifically is like very faux matronly like not mm-hmm. just not just a love. parental figure yeah dear dear is a, is a big thing that he says and it's it, it feels like yeah like matronly specifically like it's very 
creepy, strange way. And especially because yeah, he's presented so masculine in, in terms of, like, he has a beard. He's got, like, this very, like, deep voice and obviously we're, we're you know that's there's other stereotypes that are lumped in there but uh he those kind of like a hag. Hag. yes like a classic sure. witch Ooh, interesting like but with a beard yeah not necessarily masculine but kind of like a twisted feminine like a sure. mockery of it in a sense. yes certainly I, I think he's a very interesting and cool fun character whatever mm. else you can say about him he's certainly um, f- fun in terms of being a lot of interesting things that are that that create intrigue on screen and make you smile maybe in certain points perhaps, that perhaps i'm trying to smile trying to talk around the fact that it's a racist stereotype but you know it's yeah that's what i like about it <laughs> it just goes right for the heart move on? yeah let's move on let's get out of all our oliver twist uh in in general i want i really quickly sean want to get your thoughts on david lean I, I think he's a great director. I think these are his lesser works. I think we're really doing the whole Hitchcock thing where we're like seeing the stuff that criteri- either Criterion could get or Criterion wanted to preserve because his greater works are already preserved in some way. And so as a director, with in terms of his style, in terms of his his identity, is there anything that you have to say? Because in general, I, I I'm I basically see this guy in, in ter- with great expectations and Oliver Twist, and I'm like, yep, those are the things that he'll go on to be really good at. These giant landscapes, these broad shots. At the end of Great Expectations, when they get to the sea, I, I wrote here that uh, David, once Lean has the sea, he dives into it. He really, like, showcases as much as he can as, like, look, big ship. Look, giant horizon. You know, like, all that kind of thing. Right? And and he does that a lot, obviously, with Bridge on the River Kwai, and obviously, Lawrence of Arabia just, it just is perfect for that. And I just, I, so so my perspective with these two movies are, you know, he's he's a filmmaker who's who's just budding and who's just coming into his own and will eventually figure it out. And summertime, my perspective is this is the bad one. So what? <laughs> Straight up. What is it that you have? What is it? What's your perception of David Lean after seeing these? So I I'm really glad that we're seeing kind of the influence of the expressionistic mm. stuff because I'm I'm starting to get into that. I'm starting to become a real Fritz Lang head. Yes. Um, and seeing that kind of DNA of you know, the exaggerated uh, dark shadows and like beautiful use of silhouette and playing with, with darkness and light, especially in kind of an urban, uh, kind of a modern urban setting uh, right. by way of kind of gothic framing with the, with this kind of like forbidding wild natural backdrop as kind of like the fairy tale of going to the dark woods away from the known world, but also the known world is really scary and imposing. That stuff seems really cool. And then I look at the other movies that he's done and it's all just like the shit that your dad likes. And it (laughs) seems like. What is your dad like sitting you down and being like, Dr. Zhivago, check it out. Like really? Yeah. Like Lawrence of Arabia, like bridge on the river. Sure. Bridge on the River Kwai, like that kind of thing just isn't really interesting to me at all. Sure. It, so I, I'm kind of disappointed by that, at least. I, I mean, maybe I just need to dive in deeper. I'm sure he has some deep cuts that I would appreciate more. No, but 
Well, I, I, I see what you're saying there. Like he's this guy who it seems like from these two and a half movies, it seems like he would be someone who gets a little bit more uh, juice out of something, uh, things visually and is able to express himself and whatever. Whereas Maybe more artsy in a sense, not, sure. not that he's not an artist, but artsy as in a little bit more experimental, yeah. more wild, you know? pictorial. You know, like it's like like good. a painting. You know, you know he's he he would seem like that, and Lawrence of Arabia is kind of that, and Bridge on the River Kwai. At least that. when you talk about like the perception of Bridge on the River Kwai, it's like no, 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 the Al Guinness performance, the like dudes being dudes kind of mentality behind it. You know, yeah, back when men were men. Sure. All right, yeah. now we're gonna get on to my pick this week. Again, this so I may have read Henry the Fourth. Can't remember anything about it. But this is Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho. And uh, I'm just going to read, because we keep on forgetting, I'm just going to quickly, just right off the bat, read the description uh, and hope that it's better than the other Damn way. River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves star in this haunting tale from Gus Van Sant about two young street hustlers, Mike Waters, a sensitive narcoleptic who dreams of the mother who abandoned him, and Scott Favor, the wayward son of the mayor of Portland and the object of Mike's desire. Navigating a volatile world of junkies, thieves, and johns, Mike takes Scott on a quest along the grungy streets and open highways of the Pacific Northwest in search of an elusive place called home. Visually dazzling and thematically groundbreaking, my own private Idaho is a deeply moving look at unrequited love and life on society's margins. So here's the thing. I was kind of worried that you would hate this movie. Not because I thought this was the kind of movie that Mm -hmm. you would hate, but because if you did, I don't really know how I would defend it. Sure. Because he would say, like, yeah, the Shakespearean dialogue, I get what they're going with, but it's also, like, really weird and lame and corny, and Keanu Reeves is not the right guy to deliver it, <laughs> because he is not a good actor and never has been. Oh, you're like, wrong. Yeah, what Keanu Reeves is rules. one movie that he's been a good actor in? Point Break, The Matrix, John Wick. Not good in The Matrix, not good in John Wick. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's not Bogus Journey. Not to be a good actor in that does not that's fine here's the thing about keanu reeves he's got a great fucking look he's got an incredible look and honestly it's enough to carry it like the francis ford coppola dracula calls for a good performance and he gives a terrible one but it's awesome i love Mm -hmm. that movie and i love him in it i say this with all affection um i mean i know it's like annoying because he's like a meme or whatever now thankfully that's died I guess a little a little I think it's been it's been replaced with the like oh you know stinking Keanu Reeves is the most beautiful man like nice person who ever met the peak of masculinity like that kind of thing which I think is still around in replacing the sort of sad Keanu thing sure well I I don't think he's beautiful I mean I can't speak to his personality I've never met the man but he is physically just one of the most attractive that you're ever going to say sure and in this movie just listen listen i'm not a gay guy or well you know i'm not out as a gay guy yet but (laughs) i get it i get mikey and his perspective i get why he is so fucking obsessed with this yeah i think the movie helps elusive yeah I think the movie helps with that because I think the movie is 
photographs Keanu Reeves as if he is the object of someone's desire. And I'm not saying like they have slow motion shots of him or anything, but they very clearly have like shot of, you know, Mikey looking on shot of Scotty, like looking beautiful, like that kind of thing. Like they do that a lot. Yeah. I'm so um, I'm so flattened by your utter dismissal of Keanu Reeves, Sean. Though he's not a good actor, and that's fine. He's good in Point Break. I what do you mean he's not good I in Point seen Break? Point Break. I've seen the Point Break remake. It was ah, Sean. <laughs> that's not my fault. <laughs> he's good as John Wick. No, not really. I mean, he's he's great as John Wick. He's awesome as John Wick. Yes. He's not a good actor. He's it, really a, good at playing grief. But he looks cool. Oh, my gosh. He's good in The Matrix. What, what do I say? He's I good. He, if you want to go against type, he's good. My enemy. He's good in Something's Gotta to Give. revenge, John? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take revenge. Yeah, it's a stylized performance. What are you talking it's about? It's a bad performance. It's not a bad it's a performance, one, but it's awesome. It fits it the sucks, tone of the movie. Awesome. Yeah, it does this fit the tone of the movie. It's great. Specific. He's great in the movie. It's it's a perfect utilization of that role. It's a great. Um, it, it's a perfect expression of that character. Wouldn't replace him with anybody. It is a bad performance. Are you he trying is not to say a that good he is... actor? Okay, then here is this what you're trying to say? Is he not a realistic actor no he's not good at all Dang. he's not just I, got, realistic. I was he trying can't give a stylized performance either it's not like no i mean it's uh, like come come the fuck on man like this See, is the, not like a controversial thing i, I think like you're it the is. only one behind no no, no 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 i think that the modern perception is against you i think that the older percept that around the speed speed time right before the matrix it used to be keanu reeves is a bad actor and then after the matrix it was like well you know, he didn't get really on his feet. He tried a bunch of stuff. He did 47 Ronin. We're kind of done with him, right? And then he came back with John Wick and everyone's kind of like, you know, he's he's kind of good in My Own Private Idaho is the one that comes up a lot. And, you know, The Matrix and Bill and Ted and Stinking Point Break. And he's even ran, like in his random roles where he's against type, like something's got to give and The Gift. The Gift, is, he plays like, like, a, like, a, like a guy who beats his wife who who lives down south and like it's clearly some kind of like uh psychological problem with him or whatever like he's good and go home you can't just do the keanu reeves voice wife (laughs) yes i can every time you say winston i I think of overwatch and i'm just imagining keanu reeves in overwatch and the and the the monkey going like "Mm, yes overwatch (laughs) You know that thing that Winston says in Overwatch? Overwatch. Yeah, he does. It's awesome. (laughs) He sure does. He sure does. Uh, That is a joke for like three people. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone still playing Overwatch? Yeah, that's me. God bless you. (laughs) Also, also Roger. Or Robert, Roger. you're Robert. Sorry, Robert, your friend, Robert. Nope, that's fine. He doesn't deserve to have his name remembered. <laughs> uh, friend is a strong word. Um, I think he's good in this movie. I think Keanu Reeves is is. I think he's awesome good. in this movie. I think he he's again perfectly utilized. Heightens heightens the experience. Put a big smile on my face. Bad actor. The, still, 
the very first time you see Keanu Reeves, the uh, is when they're about to have sex with this woman, three guys at a time, and then Reeves, and then uh, stinking River Phoenix's character has an narcoleptic event, and he he's taken outside by Keanu Reeves, and Keanu Reeves gives the worst monologue in the history of movies. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I'm being a little broad there, but it's seriously so awful. Where he's like. Keanu Reeves like puts them down and is like, all right, you're okay. You're going to be okay, buddy. Yeah. My dad, you know, I have real problems with my dad and I've always had problems with my dad. And it's been, and I'm like, who are you talking to? This was not prompted. This came out of nowhere. What are you doing? And I think that that's badly written. It, which most of the movie is not badly written, so I don't know what the crap that mo- that scene was on. Like, who, what intern they passed that scene to? But you could contend with that. There were I wouldn't necessarily be the guy to do it, but there were people who would say that this is not a, it, it's not a cleanly immaculate immaculate i wouldn't say it, i'm not saying it's like some i'm not saying it's shakespeare or anything <laughs> but no i'm i'm but I, I, i'm saying that in general i don't one of my gripes with this movie is not badly written except for this one scene that is not only badly written i was like worried that i was gonna hate the movie after that i was like this is the beginning of the end isn't it this is when i'm gonna realize that my own private idaho is bad and that we're and i'm gonna be so sad that like this movie i thought was gonna be super good that i love keanu reeves and i you know like river phoenix and i'm 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 excited to to tackle more of their filmography and gus van sant oh awesome the the goodwill hunting guy you know he did other stuff but the goodwill hunting guy right like let's let's dive into his filmography i'm gonna be so disappointed and then the rest of the movie ended up pretty good and that monologue still like was so off-putting to me it's a little bit up and down let's let's talk about the the writing set yeah sure so it does this very interesting thing where it does Shakespearean dialogue. It's a lot like, and I'm not comparing them, but it's not, I guess I am, not especially closely. It's a lot like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, where mm. they take it into yes. a modern setting, but the dialogue is sort of transposed. The idea being like, this: the language may be archaic, but the poetry is timeless, so it, it would just be good enough to translate it. Through. And they do Which... that here, where a lot of the dialogue is just overtly Shakespearean style dialogue. Sure. I haven't read Henry the Fourth, so I don't know if it's one to one, but that's it's meant to sound Shakespearean, right? Mm. But they do it to varying degrees. And it's it's a pretty interesting device, actually, because when they're in the city, when they're with the group, when they're with Bob, mm-hmm. then that's when it they really, really lay it on thick. Like it's all all this Shakespearean style of speech. But then when they go somewhere else, when they go back to Mikey's house to visit his older brother slash father, right. then they just start talking normal. And it's it's yes. a little bit off-putting at first before you get used to it, but it it really... No, I think it's always off-putting. That, <laughs> sure, yeah. But it, it really clues you into this idea that, okay, they're, they're kind of creating their own separate world. They're mm-hmm. this isolated universe that, that they have where they have this group of people and everybody kind of speaks the same way it's like the they have their own secret language their own private uh place huh (laughs) i don't get it but yeah there's so i i mean there's a lot of scenes that i want to talk about in the paper but so here's here's my main thing 
my reading of it is this is a movie about growing up and it's not necessarily a good thing to grow up there are good and bad things um depending on what angle you look at it from but it is a story about scott kind of betraying mikey's trust by becoming exactly what he was prescribed to be Mm -hmm. he's scott favor like cartoon rich guy name set to mm. inherit however much money set to inherit his Lots, dad's a trillion and, billion dollars yeah 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 and he's he's kind of he has this idea that yeah i'll get my birthright i'll get what's coming to me i'll get this money but i'm still gonna be me baby i'm still scott like i'm still gonna do the shakespearean dialogue i'm still bumming around with you know all my cool friends like it's it's still there's the idea that I'm not going to betray myself. I'm going to stay true to who Scott is. And it's not true. He he meets a woman. He falls out of love with Mikey. He completely turns his back on all of that. And You think he was it, in love with Mikey? I think it's on the table. Mm, sure. Maybe not truly, but I, I don't know if you can truly write it off. Okay, I can see that. I mean, this is, it's a very romantic movie by which i mean it's how, how exactly to say it romantic not just in the sense of like oh you know it's it's about love and everything no but it romanticizes things it makes it it makes yes. them heightened it makes them uh dramatic and I, I hate this i hate the term but like poetic it makes everything feel like everything was meant to be that way stories tend to have this air of sort of destiny to them because you are telling the story and so you know that there must be a point at which the story begins and a point at which it ends and so there's this uh, bit of destiny to it and when stories embrace that bit of destiny we think of them as romantic we think of them as somehow fixed points within time and so uh yeah you're right there's this 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 like heightened sort of romanticism to them it's also very tragic I think. Like, you know, with that heightened aspect, there's oh, yeah, a certainly. sense of inevitability because, yeah, again, like Scott has his life laid out for him and he's saying, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'll do that, but I'm also going to be me. And there's this, you know, so this question of, like, oh, maybe his dad's going to move his inheritance over. But ultimately, he becomes what he's prescribed to be from the beginning. And yeah. But it, it's he... written as, like, inevitable and also mm-hmm. something that. It seems to me that Scott kind of always knew what he had to do. And maybe it's not necessarily that he didn't love Mikey, although maybe he didn't, but it's he's the only one who really understands the the inevitable force of destiny that'll lead him to where he ends up. Yeah, I, I basically feel the same way you do, except that I, I read the ending not as just him going back to the place that he was supposed to end up at i i don't think that's the tragedy of the story i think the tragedy of the story is forgetting where he came, the rebellious spirit that, that he had it's i think the tragedy of the story is sort of him taking advantage of the fact that he had to grow up it I, I read this uh, the, to me the key to this story is the the moment where they're sitting at the fire and Keanu, they're talking about their like childhoods or whatever and F- river phoenix is all like man if i had like a good family or a good father or good parents then i would be i would have not ended up where i am now and keanu reeves who is where they are now and had quote a good family and quote a good father and all that he's like well what is like a good father 
like, do you need to have a dog in the family? Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah, if I had a exactly. dog, like, whatever. He's making fun of that idea. And I think that the point is more like the idea that at a certain point you choose your destiny. When you grow up, there is a point at which you no longer can blame the way that you were raised for making you into the choices that you make in your everyday life. And so where Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix are throughout this movie, where they are these vagabond prostitutes who are always, you know, one dollar behind and one step ahead there. I, I think that the place that they're in is not dictated by the fact that they grew by the, by where they grew up, but rather the the choices that they make. The only difference between Keanu Reeves and uh, and River Phoenix is that Keanu Reeves has this like get out of jail free card that he's going that's going to sort of come in handy where he gets to wipe the slate clean. The the tragedy of his character isn't just that he that he quote grew up that he that he left this world, but he kind of forgets that. Like when Bob comes to him and says his whole like man, you're my boy, you're my son, and he's like, I loved you like a father. I can't. I'm not doing Keanu. He's like, I love you. When like you a do father. an impression of him, you do it as if he was a bad actor because he is. Oh, Sean! No, it's just that I'm bad at acting, Sean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Couldn't he does. He's saying that he's like a, he, you know, like I loved you, like you were better than my dad, who I'm gonna have to bury today or whatever. And he says all that, and the and he has this thing at the end where he says like I I needed you at the time and but until I maybe return to that world and I will not need you again and the point is that he kind of grew beyond this thing and, and I don't even mean grow I mean that he didn't have to reckon with the childhood that he had he didn't have to reckon with the fact that he made all those choices because he has this privilege of just wiping the table the slate clean and instead and and in in contrast to him you have river phoenix's character who is never going to be able to move beyond the fact that his mommy abandoned him <laughs> that he doesn't have a mom you know like that he doesn't yeah. have a childhood and i don't think that it's so much i don't think it's so much like oh they ended up in the places that they were always inevitable to to end up in and even keanu reeves could not escape his his place and you know, River Phoenix couldn't escape his place, right? I think it's more that to move into the next phase of life, you have to reckon with and face the consequences of the childhood that you've led up to that point. And Keanu Reeves doesn't have to, and River Phoenix still isn't able to find his parents, and so he can't. But I, 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 I think we're I think close. What you're saying, we're close. Yeah, I think what you're saying speaks to. We are very close, but I, I just close but kind of opposite right right sean sean's my best bud but we're also very different like that that's how we're close but opposite yeah but i i think it's mostly about i think it is like kind of the dictate of destiny kind of mm. putting them back in, in their place but i mean this this is kind of a theme here and especially in a film that we haven't talked about yet but i believe mm-hmm. that a film can contain mutually contradictory readings um, that reinforce each other, and I don't know if that's fully here because I uh-huh. I really believe that this is about like destiny specifically. That's that's kind of what I the impression that I get from it. But you know, we can we can agree to disagree on this because I think we both like the sure. movie from similar well, but very slightly different. Angles. 
I see there especially are. my reading in everything that uh, River Phoenix does. It, you know, he starts this thing on this road and he's like, man, there's like this, the, I've been here before. There's this endless road or whatever. And he thinks of it as this like perfect thing of being able to stretch on into forever. He's like, it would wrap completely around the world in a circle. And now that I'm saying that out loud, that does sound like it kind of <laughs> helps your idea of like, oh, it's destiny. It's what coming saying. back to where you are. Yeah. Whereas I see that as the, <laughs> you're right. Oh man. I kind of see it as the opposite, which is like, man, it's the, it, it's saying that like, he feels like he ha- can't, he doesn't have a choice. He has to reckon with his childhood. He has to go back. He has to, to redo the past because it, it would in Idaho, because he has not yet found a way to grow up. Again, there's this certain point in a young man or young woman or young whatever's life where they have to grow up, where they have, and part of that growing up is deciding how you are going to deal with the childhood you've had up to that point and whether you're going to accept those consequences. Yeah, I I don't even see these as contradicting. I guess that the idea of destiny, I I just I don't see the emphasis there as much as you do. I guess it it leaves room for both. I think it's fair to say. Right. Right. But there were a few things that I want to. Sorry, go ahead. No, whereas that I won't. We won't spoil it. But whereas the next movie we talk about, I think we have just contradicting face-to-face uh, opinions. Yes, very much so. But before we move on, there, there are at least a few things that I want to address in this movie because this is. I feel like this is an unconventional movie. I don't know how intentional it is, but. I very much saw River Phoenix's portrayal of Mikey. First of all, I just want to acknowledge the fact that if you are in a duo of male friends slash romantic partners, it's ambiguous, and you're the Mikey, you might want to calm down. Because if you're going to be really needy and weird and attached, then um, then we've seen how that works out. Your wow. Mickey might have to take care of you. Yeesh. But, You're Nikki. Um, nice. Nice. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. I I really saw a little bit of a... Uh, it seems like a little bit of a fellow traveler. Kind of a, a fellow train schedule American. Let's say. <laughs> he seems very, uh, very autistic. Because, I mean, there's the childishness, right? I mean, not just childishness, because uh, I want to make it very clear. I was diagnosed with Asperger's, which I think got grandfathered into autism. I think I'm normal now. I think I cured myself. But, you know, I can still I can still wear that as a badge of honor to say, you know, to, to say at least this. But a lot of small things that he brings in. And yeah, you could say it's oh just him being childish, just him expressing that he's immature, but the scene that really brought this into focus for me was in the restaurant or with that group of people and there's this neat little, you know, editing slash camera trick where every character is implied to be in the same location, but they're shot as if they're completely alone and they're all kind of talking past each other. And there's this flickering between each of their stories. And it just so solidly communicated, just reminded me of so many situations where you just feel incredibly alone and isolated when you're, when you're in a social environment that's overstimulating. And what really brought it to focus for me even more so was just when he's sitting with a lady and she's blowing smoke in his face and he just immediately gets so pissed by it. Mm-hmm. He's just the, the patented autistic kid. Oh, 
when something happens that sure. pisses you off. And it's just such a small, weird little thing. And then you observe that a little bit later on, he blows smoke in somebody else's face as mm-hmm. kind of a... Like, Screw oh, you. you. Yeah, yeah to not, Keanu Reeves really like this. And, his, and his lover, yeah. Yeah. And and they don't react the same. They kind of laugh it off. And he's like mad at them for not reacting the way he did in that earlier scene. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of, a, of an empathy problem. But I don't know. I, I just thought that that was something that Rivers Phoenix brought to the character that I don't think is necessarily, I don't think it's at all inherent in the script. But I thought it was a cool little touch. And even if it is not intentional at all, it, it, it gives some depth to the character that I really Agreed. I, I think there could be a way in that which that is intentional. Could be also just River Phoenix doing his sort of arrested development thing. I think, you know, I'm going to say something real controversial here. I think River Phoenix is worse in this movie than Keanu Reeves. There, I said it. I think River Phoenix is doing three things too much. But yeah, yeah. You know, I can see it. I can see it. I think he just keeps, he, he he's doing like capital A acting where it's like, oh, I got to like, do i have to find like a thing a truth in like the scene and and be this character and and kind of like you know bite my nails because that would be like a tick that i can do something it's business or whatever and i I think that he he does that a little too much he also doesn't chew over that dialogue as well i also really want to shout out ego here for a standout small part here Mm. because um I truly did not know that he was going to be recurring after our Flesh for Frankenstein and Cluster Dragon. Yes! I, I, think, I don't even think that we had time to acknowledge it on there, but he is he, Mr. Dr. Frankenstein slash Dracula himself mm. is in this movie, and uh, would you believe it? He's kind of weird. No way! Wouldn't have guessed. I'm trying to double check right now who Udo Kier played. Oh, duh! He plays Hans! Oh, yeah. obviously! Oh my goodness! He's awesome! Yeah. <laughs> I We also need to shout out the still frame slash not still frame sex scenes. Yes, I, want, I was one wondering... One of the most incredible ways to express that act ever put to film. I think it's really well done. I think it's a amazing bit that has been copied since... But I, I wondered if you would have wrapped that into your reading of of uh, River Phoenix as an autistic person because I did not. Uh, I was wondering how exactly that would that stylistic choice would relate to the rest of the the film. And obviously, they do it in the Keanu Reeves sex scene as well, where he's by him, he's with a woman instead of River Phoenix. But I I, I see it as an interesting stylistic choice. Almost to just kind of skip over gay sex? Yeah, well, if we're folding it into the autistic reading, then it gives this kind of distance and awkwardness from the sexuality. It seems that there's so much more of a focus on the emotional intimacy that the sex is almost kind of an afterthought. Mm. But I, I think that you could also read it as a very charged, very, you know, very heavy. It's very unique. Even if the idea was just, I want to shoot this in a way that's cool, it's cool enough where I think that that's him. But that, that's what I would provide, sure. another kind of sense of distance from it, how it's kind of uncanny, kind of strange, kind of borderline. That's, that's what I would say to support that reading, if it does at all. Right. If not, that's okay. Sure enough. All right. Would you like to move on?
Yes, sir. All right. This is going to be. Well, nope, 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 nope. I'm surprising you, Sean. Boom. Surprise. Oh, no. Roasted. We're not, we're, we're not doing wise. We're blood. doing. We're doing. We're stepping it. Uh, Sean, it's a, it's Anthony's a very assaultive uh, segment that gets thrown in every once in a while. Anthony watches Twin Peaks and I surprise Sean. Oh, no. I wonder what he'll say. Sean, uh, I think Twin Peaks is pretty weird. Now we're going to move on to Wise Blood. Sean, is, this is your pick this week, and I wrote a little little poem uh, in, in, in memory of uh, this movie. Because, baby, now we got wise blood. You know I really hate Jesus, and I don't believe in God. Because, baby, now we got wise blood. Hey, that's completely original poem. <laughs> Copyright, Anthony. Uh, that's pretty good. 2020. Three. <laughs> Listen, this is. I mean, I think we're one for one with poems at this point, or two for two. Yeah, one hundred percent. If you count, if you count mine in the beginning, which I'm not sure why you wouldn't. It, it's I think the we best do a poem, poem an episode. Now, yeah, because they've both been. Hits. They're really good so far. They're both about as completely good as original too. I think that we. I think we should emphasize how original these poems are that we come up with just off the top of our heads. And are really good. Well, I copied mine completely oh. from Taylor Swift lyrics. Oh, how dare you! No, it's kind of a deep cut. It's on like one of the. It's on like the French release of Red or something. <laughs> she does her death poem. Nice. Yeah, with my name too, which is kind of a strange coincidence. But uh, let's let's get into the summary here, huh? <laughs> Certainly. Let's let's stop digging ourselves a deeper pit into this bit. <laughs> In this acclaimed adaptation of the first novel by legendary Southern writer Flannery O'Connor, John Huston vividly brings to life a poetic world of American eccentricity. Brad Dorr, in, his, in an impassioned performance, is Hazel Motes, who, fresh out of the army, attempts to open the first church without Christ in the small town of Tocqueville. Populated with inspired performances that seem to spring right from O'Connor's pages, Houston's wise blood is an incisive portrait of spirituality and evangelical and a faithful, loving evocation of a writer's I So this summary seems to be a little bit more on with your reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I want you to go ahead and get started with why you weren't as in this. I, because... uh, I don't like this movie because I think this movie is full of crap. I think, and I'm not saying that, so I, I want to emphasize something really quick. I am a Christian. I, I talk about this. I, I pub make sure I'm very public about it. I'm a Christian. I, I talk about this all the time. You're a priest. This is a confession. <laughs> You're actually confessing to me right now all your crimes, and that's actually what this podcast is. You just don't know it. No, but uh, seriously, uh, this is uh, you know this is uh, an important part of my life, and so I want to say that when I talk about this movie, I am completely divorcing it as much as I can from my opinions about Christianity and about God. And because of that, uh, because I'm divorcing it from that, I have to look at this movie and I, I see a movie that doesn't know exactly what it wants to be. It doesn't know whether it wants to sanction the actions of this, this character, Hazel, who, who sort of professes to be the first priest of anti- I wouldn't say anti-Christ, like anti-religious preachings. He he wants to have a church that is anti-Christian, 
that that just is apart from religion and believes that the only thing the only core truth about the world is that there is no core truth to the world i i don't think this movie necessarily knows whether that guy is someone you should like or someone you should dislike and sean disagrees with me sean sees this as yes very strong and 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 in watching this movie i don't i come across as very didactic to be like is it pro or anti-religion is this a anti-religious movie or do you think that it actually thinks that you know christianity or some form of religion is a good thing and i think that because you can read this movie as both because it has so much random crap going on I think that it's just a big old assemblage of aesthetics and ideas and rants and throwaway lines and offbeat humor and little portraits of different archetypes in America that doesn't amount to anything as a whole. And so that is my reading of Wise Blood, whereas Sean has has a little bit more uh, of a direct idea about it. I, I think that this movie does contain, well, here's, here's how I'll say it. So, I don't know exactly how the phrase goes, but the idea is that every everything inherently contains its opposite. And I think that what this movie portrays is essentially a fallen world that is devoid of God mm. and searching for a replacement. Obviously, most directly in its protagonist, Hazel, who is preaching... He, he's very much so O'Connor's the Catholic that was a big part of her identity as a writer as a creator and Hazel seems kind of like the idea of an atheist as imagined kind of like a straw man version of an atheist as imagined by someone who's very religious mm. who not only is is anti not only do they not believe in God but they are anti-God and they are kind of worshipping the idea of nothing the Church of Christ, but that Christ is not only we are rejecting God, but it's all about proselytizing about you are clean without God. What gives you meaning is the fact that God doesn't exist. It's it's sort of it's grouping around the idea of nothingness and worshiping it as a concept. And I think that the film is very much against it. Kind of. It, it's not. It's not so much saying like, hey, look at this guy. Look at how bad he is. I mean, he's not he's certainly not a good guy. He's certainly not a good character. Sure. But I think it's fundamentally a tragedy about the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of, of beauty in, in a fallen world. And not just beauty, but everything that is truthful, everything that is beautiful. God, you know, within the universe of this film, and probably according to O'Connor's intent, but it can really be anything. I, and I like the idea. I like saying it truth as a thing, a core universal bedrock but, that everything can be based but on. But truth is nothing without specific. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have interrupted you there, but truth is nothing without specifics. Not well, God is nothing without specifics. Like what is, can you give me a specific idea of what God is? Of what God is to specific people? If you no, say that like, you, well, you, if you're asking me to define what the truth is, nothing about specifics, I can say the same thing about something like God. And it, and keep in mind, I'm not using that as a criticism, as a criticism, a criticism of, of the sure. concept of God. I'm saying that these are things well, that when people refer, cannot be defined by specific. When you refer to, to God within specific, would be to reduce. Them. When you refer, when you refer to God within philosophy, you were referring to an all-powerful being. That that not necessarily. 
When you're referring to God within philosophy, that's a broad brush with which to paint. That could be a million different things. Okay, all right. Let me take a step back. When you refer to God within common culture, you tend to be referring within American culture. You tend to be referring to the Christian God. When you break it down to people who are agnostic about the existence of God, they tend to be agnostic. They tend to say there is a God, meaning there is some higher being within the universe that exists, whether they are the Judeo-Christian idea or not. It is some kind of higher being within the universe and so that is how i would define god is the the, as a concept when i define the actual person that i believe as god of course i go through a judeo-christian i you know idea but when in general when you're talking about the concept of god you tend to be thinking of a higher being more powerful than the rest of us and when you talk about agnosticism when you talk about uh, you know, the, the God problem, the like, uh, if God is all good, then how can, you know, and if God is all powerful, how can the world be so corrupt or whatever? You're thinking of God as being all powerful as a given, as an, uh, he's an omniscient being. And that is what I'm referring to, to when I, when I say God, when you're talking about truth, what I'm saying is that when you're talking about truth on a thematic level, we're talking about movies that are about quote truth, then the pursuit of truth has to eventually have an answer because truth can't just be 20 things. Truth. Can- what? I mean, but that's, we're not meant to see directly what the answer is because like I said, this movie is defined by what is absent from it, sure. which is truth, which is God. I'm using them kind of interchangeably in this context. We are hinted at the end that Hazel has, achieved and we're, we're kind of skipping around here but yeah that's no yeah skip around go how this has to go where by the end when when hazel rejects kind of the falseness of ace hawks and says i'm going to cross the boundary that he couldn't pass this false creature this con man right i am going to define myself against him i'm going to blind myself and i'm going to shut myself off from the material world from from right. you know the world everything that i know I'm going to separate myself from that and define myself against it. And then it's implied that he finds something. We're not told exactly what it is. Implied, I mean, it is God. Like where the, the movie frames it as such, where that's pretty much the inevitable conclusion you have to come to. But the, the woman that he's staying with in the boarding house is like every other character in this movie. Everyone else in Talking Head is just someone who is unmoored from from goodness, from God, because they live in a fallen, corrupt, modern world mm-hmm. where, you know, true religion, true faith has been discarded. And she wants to marry him because she's, she realizes, she catches a whiff of the same thing that he's got. And even though he's, I, this is, I, I want to make it very clear. Like, it's not an inspiring story about a man finding his faith. It's a tragic, awful story about the depths to which someone has to sink, the pain that someone has to endure in order to find a truth. And it's a commentary on how awful it is, how awful the world is, that you have to go to such means, that it's necessary to lower yourself to this level in in order to find the 
the thing that should be the basis for all of human existence. But the truth he lands not, on is not a is not a truth of that it's not a pro-religious truth it's not he doesn't land on the idea of wait i actually do need some kind of religion he lands on the idea of i actually need to uh, actually he he calls do you remember so in the beginning when he's giving his his speeches on the the first you know proselytizations on the church of christ without christ Mm. he says specifically you are clean you are not unclean. Right. Thy and then at the you end, he doesn't. Yeah. And at the end, he says he's unclean. And he's binding himself with the barbed wire. He's walking on the rocks. He's doing Christian. He's doing Catholic penitence. Like, he is completely switched over. Mm-hmm. And I don't think at that point we even really need it to be spelled out for us that this is what he's found because something has very clearly changed. Sure. I think that. It, it it changed though to he still has this he he does this self-harming thing but i don't think that it is in worship of a god i don't think that he becomes a religious man at the end i don't think he beca- i think that he, in in any kind of christian sense at all i think that the point is that at the end when he when he's doing these things he's completely broken and part of the what i think the movie's trying to say when he's walking on rocks and wrapping himself in barbed wire is to say that he's actually just a a broken person who was destroyed by religion and now is unfunctional and that he worships he continues to worship nothingness and live his life in rejection of any kind of purpose, including the marriage, including, you know, being taken care of by someone, even as a blind person, is he's rejecting any kind of idea uh, that there might be something more for him in his life than nothingness. And so when he is trying to hurt himself, when he's trying to do that, it is part of his sort of uh, so it, it, it's not it's it's a misfire it's a it's a like the car that he drives it's a loose wire in his brain that isn't quite fixed and when he's flashing back to all these things it is also that fact that he was like destroyed by religion and so when i when i see this movie i i think of that at moment that the the moments at, that he flashes back and there's everything's pink and there's this preacher who's yelling at him and everything as as very anti-christian as saying like man that those religious nuts they just create sort of and not even anti-christian anti-religion in that like religion has added a sort of net uh, worsening towards the world. And this is the one guy who actually said like, well, I should create a church to let everyone know about that. But what he realizes it quickly is that if you try to embrace the idea of worshiping nothing, then you actually won't be able to preach that to everyone because everyone worships something. And so it will miss, it will misfire. And also you will not be worshiping nothing. You will be worshiping something that is your idea of nothing. Yeah, I, I don't. And I don't know if I would have. Sorry. Yeah. And so that self harming thing, I think, is just again another way of saying this character. He's he's broken. He 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 doesn't function on the same way that we do because he has been, you know, traumatized. Whatever you want to say, but you know, you have a uh, a lot of modern people who are like unchristened. You know, a lot of people who are like I I had a terrible traumatic experience with the church and now I'm I'm recovering. Right. 
and 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 this is one of those kinds of people you know i don't know if i would have a specific reputation like that i mean this is something that always comes up is if someone doesn't like a movie the emotional experience of the film Mm. just didn't really take them in then they're not going to be that interested in exploring all the implications that it could possibly have. And I try, whereas me, right. like I try not to be yeah, that person. It doesn't mean you're. Right. It doesn't mean you're not intellectually like honest or anything. Sure. It's just you. You literally don't have the energy for it. Like you do not have the the fuel in the tank. Sure. To to like make that extra leap on your own time. But this, I mean, we can talk more about what the actual contents of the, the film are. But for me, it it brought the book which i thought was okay to life for me and kind of activated it like oh shit that's what it was about the whole time and mm. it, it gave me this very distinct kind of beautiful idea of but yeah this is the, a tragedy about the cost of attaining truth in a fallen world it's right. it's very gnostic it's about you know the, the world the material world that we exist on is impossible to be a good christian it's impossible to live a good christian life and it's about the tragic, bittersweet, kind of beautiful, but but tragic downfall slash ultimate revelation of a young man who's angry, who's hateful, who's unmoored from from like the deep spiritual bedrock of the deep fundamental truth of, of living and life and love and humanity. Everything that's beautiful is being separated from him by virtue of living in America. But I I don't think it's necessarily. I understand how this could be read as, oh, you know, religion is causing him pain. And I think that that is true. It, I think that religion and revelation and religious truth is causing him pain. Mm-hmm. And it is putting him through all these things. I don't think that that, but I don't think that that's necessarily a, a condemnation of religion. Sure. I think that, that it, it's, there's room for it to be saying that, yes, this is a painful thing. It can put you through awful awful experiences and in some ways make your life a living hell but it's worth it it's worth it to obtain that final step and it shouldn't be like this it shouldn't require all this pain but it's better than you know being condemned to live with the rest of these just completely empty people and i get Mm -hmm. that make you know if you're not super into this movie that can seem like a little bit of a stretch but which is i don't know, you know it really i didn't even i didn't even like this isn't even one of the movies that i watched and was like unengaged with like i wasn't watching this like like flesh for frankenstein i know you really liked it but i just watched it and was kind of like yeah this is some you know softcore porn like whatever and i like tried not to look at my phone and was kind of bored and you know meandering about and thinking and trying to like focus on the thing and be able to take notes and pay attention i was engaged by this movie on an intellectual level i wrote down a lot of notes i i I think that i i love harry dean stanton and i was you know praising everything he did as as the not really blind preacher but i but i see what you mean where i just i it's that this movie feels like it contradicts itself every so often. And it is a movie that we're, you know, we're really focusing on the ending here too. And it is. Yeah. Do we want to talk about sure. some of the inroads and outroads or some of the other vignettes and kind of side characters? It's a series of vignettes uh, of moments. 
but there, this movie ends with sort of a reverential idea of like this guy who's like dying and they pull I, I, I joke to you like it's there's this shot at the end where uh, he's laying on the ground he's laying on the uh, the couch or whatever and someone's shaking him going like uh you know whatever your name is hazel hazel and then like the the camera's pulling back and you're like oh i get it because he's dead right like the most obvious clear indication of he's dead but like with reverential like sad tragedy or whatever and i think that that exists that that's like one the one of the last shots of the movie and one of the first shots of the movie is where is the shot of the her uh, of his mother's grave where it says gone to become an angle <laughs> which is kind of your version it reminded me of uh stinking walker with the like uh, welcome mr uh what, what's his name again williams, williams walker. walker right New not really a again i don't know if that's really a joke but i think that it is saying don't take these religious nuts seriously and he himself is resentful and mad at those relig quote religious nuts who put like gone to be like defaced her grave by trying to say she's became an angel when actually it's just misspelled right like i i i think that those two things the reverential idea of him and the uh, idea of satirizing this guy and the many many other people who profess religion throughout the uh, along the way with with this movie kind of counter everything you're saying about like he finally found religious truth he finally found some kind of euphoria euphoria or nirvana or whatever you want to call it where he was at the end of his life that was a religious truth that did point him in the right direction where he realized that he could not just worship nothing that he had to worship something he found something there and i i think that he didn't i think that or, or maybe he did but i don't think the movie is that clear cut i think this movie is just a bag of nothing and it has a lot of and a lot of the other vignettes include like this 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 con artist guy who's like i can you know market your stuff and we should sell this stuff to people for a dollar a pop there's this other character that i want you to speak on because i have no idea why he's in the movie enoch who seems completely superfluous and dresses in a gorilla suit i am not joking that is something that happens in this movie if you thought that this movie was kind of normal otherwise (laughs) i feel like people always do that with shit like Oh, this movie is fucking crazy. A guy dresses in a gorilla suit. Like, it, it comes. Anything can. That's yeah. not really that weird. Anything can happen in a movie. Of course, you know? it, but it comes out of nowhere. Like you don't expect okay, well, this kind of behavior from the movie from characters within this movie. So here, let me let me speak on this a little bit because when I was reading the book, it kind of came out of nowhere, right? But Enoch, so. Enoch is the originator uh, within the story for the the term wise blood, which is his kind of way of saying, I have these instincts. I have this wise blood that always tells me what I need to do and where I need to go at any moment. So he has this conception of himself as somebody who doesn't need any kind of deep spiritual force. He doesn't need any kind of solid grounding. He, He just always knows exactly what to do. But Enoch is, like wise blood really is just kind of a, cipher for animal instinct like enoch he the first we see of him he attaches himself to hazel like a little lost puppy he's just desperate for any kind of affection any kind of attention he's you know he specifically mentions to hazel like yeah 
I've been in this town for a little bit, but nobody's friendly. Like nobody greets me. Like that's something specific that he, he mentions. Like nobody says hi to me on the street. And he works in a zoo. He's got all these kind of weird compulsions where he steals a, a shrunken corpse to be the new Jesus and whatever. Like the ending of his story is when there's a gorilla, gorilla, quote unquote, that's coming to promote like you know, some whatever trashy Tarzan movie. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's a guy in a gorilla suit, very clear. But Enoch is just completely fooled. He stands in a line with the kids and what's the line for? It's to shake the gorilla's hand. Because he's like, nobody in this town greets you. This is the first right. time he's had an opportunity to have someone look him in the eye and say hello to him. He's unmoored. He's looking for any kind of human connection. He's desperate. And eventually, the guy in the gorilla suit, when he comes back around a few times, tells him to fuck off. Mm. And he kind of puts things together in a different way. So he ends up killing the guy, stealing the gorilla suit, and then trying to shake hands with just some random people. They scream, they walk away, and he's like, well, what the fuck? And that's where his story ends. That's it. That, like and, and again, that's literally it. I, you never see him again. And it's awesome. Again, yes, you're right. Anything can happen in a movie. But it really does. Co- it does. It, it the is. main it character does. is nowhere to be seen for all of this storyline. <laughs> no, they, they completely branch off because they're in a, the same place or a similar place. But they come from completely different angles. Hazel is is trying to find his way through anger and through rejection from all things. Sure. He's trying to annihilate the idea that you need any kind of motivation force. Well, Enoch is kind of being led astray by this sort of demiurgical, purely material, earthbound force that he believes is compelling him to do the right and good thing. But he's just as lost or more lost than anybody else. And it's too different it's a study in tragedy but just from two different angles um i i actually think that again i wasn't super huge on the book in the beginning sure but i really think the the core here for what the film translation to spell it out for me is mostly brad dorf honestly like it's it's a really good performance but the way that it's good is just what really brought it on the page, I wasn't really sure what Hazel was doing, right? He felt like, hey, he could be aloof, he could be put together, he could be this, this, and this. But this movie really emphasizes he is just this childish, empty, pissed-off hush. Yeah. Like, the way that Brad Dork just spits all of his lines at people, and he's always just leaning in and snarling and looking with just this icy piercing expression that seems to be fixed on some point just past whoever he's talking to just just like makes a lot of sense like he's playing a veteran he's playing a young man who was ruined by war and is coming back to a place that is just as if not more emotionally and spiritually desperate than wherever he was shipped out to. Mm-hmm. it makes me really want someone to put brad dorf in a good movie. <laughs> this is the only one that i can think of like the, all the other work he does is for like Return of Chucky or whatever. Sure. Which is like, come on, man, he you can do more than that. Well, it doesn't help that his name's Brad Dwarf, 
Like that feels it like a really double doesn't. strike. Everybody thinks like, oh, we've already got Peter Dinklage. We don't need. Him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and I, I generally, I, I think that his performance is good in terms of feeling like it created a rounded out character. I don't know if it helps the movie thematically because I, again, like I cannot think of him as someone who came to some kind of reverential th- truth because he does not, he seems like the same spitty teenager whiny brat throughout the whole movie he has a little bit more control in his voice at the end Whoa, by the end he is completely hollowed out like it's it's very very different he's like, like ultimate he's, emo boy he's the ultimate my chemical romance nothing that matters man guy well, by yeah the end. but he's it's different he starts with anger and he ends with sad anger like that's the arc. Yeah, he starts with Mister. He starts with Mister Self Destruct, and then he ends with her. <laughs> good, good pull. Yeah, I, I, all in all, I, I, I think you've really championed this movie a little bit to me to to show me some of its thematic multitudes that it holds within. But generally, I cannot get past the fact that I don't think that this movie knows whether it the the perspective that it's taking i think that maybe you take the perspective of i've read the book and this is how i feel about and and because i this is the thematic reading i had of the book this felt like an expansion of that and built upon it and i think that no i didn't i i think that this is what gave me that reading of the book retroactively like i didn't see it until i didn't see it until after i watched that right okay I, but I, it's all right. Then maybe I'm not putting this upon you. Maybe I'm putting that upon you. I, I it's I, I sometimes see this thing where it's like I, I, I have 2001 A Space Odyssey. Have you read 2001 A Space Odyssey? No. Do you know what happens at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey because you've seen the movie? More or less, maybe. No. Change the answer is no. You don't know what happens at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey because you've seen the movie. You know what you, happens at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey because you read some article that explained that in the book this happened. In 2001 A Space Odyssey, it ends in a very oblique, nearly completely spitting in the face of like storytelling conventional storytelling wisdom type way that does not give you anything to grasp onto or or any kind of it, it does it does not tell a clear narrative the idea that like that's supposed to be a bad thing i am not saying it's a bad thing it's 2001 a space odyssey what i am saying though is you don't know what happens at the end of 2001 you don't know that he turns into a baby because there's some like outside beings who are like keeping him in this like little hidey hole where he becomes old for for you know whatever a hundred years and then dies and then is resurrected as a baby because you saw 2001 a space odyssey the you know that because you read the back of the box or you read the book or you found out from other people who have seen the movie that that was what kubrick was going for or whatever similarly i wonder I, i maybe i'm wrong I, I wonder if a lot of people bring to this movie sort of the, what the the book seems to have there, which is just which seems to invigorate these characters a little bit more and make and flesh out the themes to be more specific and more taking a stance and not just putting themes out into the world and letting you come in with your own subjective viewpoint. I've also seen a, a lot of reviews of this movie that would disagree with you would say that this is a very uh it's a it's a 
what what would you say? Like it's a it's a damning uh kind of exercise of exorcise of you know American Christianity and how that is all flawed and awful and terrible. And I think that I think it's less interesting. I I don't think it's wrong. I think that's a part of it, but I think it's not essentially missing the overarching goal. But mm. that can exist simultaneously as a part and parcel of the larger goal. Which is which I don't think so because I think that this movie is it also somehow has reverence for this guy who like comes to has a quote come to Jesus moment that's spurred on by like a policeman throwing his car in the stinking water in, into a pond. Like I, I it's more than that. It's also spurred on by the fact this is coming immediately after he murders the guy who Ami J. Holy is using to stand in for him with that very same car. Like the car is right. a very powerful symbol here. Right. This fixation, this denial of reality. Like, oh, it's a good car, it'll work. This, you know, emphasis on freedom and you need a car to get anywhere. And I mean, a car is just such a distinctly American mm. thing. Like I I, I mean Sure. He says it's a good if you have a good car, you don't need anything else. Yeah, yeah. Saying, I mean, like that. listen, like the people who have the most criticisms and the most specific criticisms of religion are Christians. Like, I think you can attest to this. Like, you would have a more robust understanding of what is wrong with you know contemporary approaches to religion or what you think could be better, what you think could be improved. I think that this is is part of that like you can it, it's critical it's very critical scathingly critical in many ways but I, I, the, see your thing i would i would reject but with absolutely no with, with absolutely no representation of quote a, a good religious but, but do person, you need that a, like do you need the movie B, to spell that without, out for you like it's again it's defined by no its but but you can't sh- but you can't show the like ha, a, a thousand bad Christians. You, you can't. If show, there was a good Christian in this movie, Sean, it would literally not is, work. Is Great Expectations it would not work. or no? Wait, is Oliver Twist racist? Is Oliver Twist racist? Oliver Twist. I mean, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. You know why? Because it's one Jewish character is this huge Jewish stereotype, like that. Like the and so is Wise Blood anti Christian. Yeah, a little bit because every single Christian person in it is is an awful. What? There are no Christian people. There are no stereotype Christian people. Of, there is not a genuine Christian in the entire are, thing. Every single one of them is a con artist. There are genuine Christianity. If you're if you're talking about genuine Christianity in terms of people who actually genuinely think that they have been accepted by Jesus and are going to get into heaven, or think that some think that because they are belie- of their beliefs in God, they are quote a Christian that they self identify when they are alone at night as a Christian. Then yes, there are. Uh, the stinking girl that he hangs out Sabbath? with is no. totally she, a Christian person. She doesn't person. think she's going to get into heaven at all. That's literally her entire character is that she thinks... Yes, she doesn't think she's going to get into heaven, but she definitely believes what? in where God you, where and thinks are of you herself as a Christian. From? She's giving out these tracks. She's talking to him about like... She's doing I'm it because a, her you know, I believe in. They are trying to scam people. She doesn't think she's getting into heaven. People. Yes, but she doesn't think she's getting into heaven and she believes that a heaven exists. She believes that a God exists, and she just thinks that she's exempt from that world no, she, because she's she's literally she writes demonic. into Dear Abner yeah, exactly. or whatever about like whether she can neck on you, people or whatever. She takes the idea of God seriously, but she is she's trying to 
corrupt Hazel. She says as much, you know, and again, this is a book thing, but no, I, I won't even address that, but she mm-hmm. is trying to seduce Hazel sexually. She's the one who initiates that. She's uh-huh. the one who's saying like, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm not getting, she basically all but says like, no, I am not even a Satanist. Like I am demonic. I'm a literal demon. I want to undermine the will of God in this world because her father, she doesn't, she, she has no respect for the idea of God or respect for the idea of religion because her father is a con artist. Like again, yeah, the, Here's the thing. If there, what I mean when I say that this movie would not work if there was a genuine good Christian character, is then it would say, well, that uh-huh. would mean the material world has those points of light that peek through that we still have. No, look out there in America. No matter how bad things get, there are still good people, which would be undermining the point of the whole fucking thing. Like it's about sure. his journey finding in a world that is completely bereft of this finding that point of light and you know it's all to himself it's a personal revelation it's not supposed to be a one-to-one this is what the world is like it's supposed to be a dramatized representation of the experience of living as a christian and the feeling of it and the feeling as o'connor and i think you know i mean the the core of the story i think really is intact so i think i feel safe in saying o'connor's here that mm. the feeling is that I have no allies. I am alone. It needs to be this personal journey. And I understand Hazel. I understand the person who is angry at religion and wants to reject it. But even through all of that, it's contending that it's still worth it and it still can be found. But you just can't. I wish I could see that because that sounds like a great movie. That sounds like a movie that I want. You know, I'm a, such an advocate for like, and this is Anthony talking here as a person. I want to see more movies that take a, that take a religious look at life without having to be like sap and Christian bookstore direct to video type garbage. You know, I, I want to see more of those. That being said, I just think that this one, it, it is complex in that there are a lot of elements to it, but okay fine you want to you want to throw out you want to throw out the girl then you got his stinking preacher who he talked who who stinking yells at him and tells him that he's going to hell so many times that he pees his pants like you have the weird you you have this implication of like a church that he's left behind uh full of people who just have horribly traumatized him i think you you have the guy who's who where what's his name holy who yells at him and and talks about God and and s- professes to be a Christian even if when he gets home he's he's not and and it's all a bunch of phonies and it's a bunch of fakes and it's a bunch of people who are lying to themselves or lying to other people in order to sort of recruit them i think that that is a i think that that in addition to the fact that the main character doesn't arrive at any kind of traditional religious end point but rather ends by walking out the door because it really doesn't matter at all walking into the rain because it doesn't matter at all and being found by cops because who cares i think that those things add up to a movie where he embraces the idea of nothing mattering and realizes in the end that he is a guy that that to um, to not really love to to not really embrace the worship of anything you 
have to completely cut yourself off from everything because he was worshiping this idea of his car for a while, this materialistic thing. And once it failed him, he had to kind of isolate himself and find something new. I, I, I think we're just going to talk in circles there, but that, I think that's, that's basically yeah. my final word on I, it. I, it. Considering that, you know, I just want to give a brief mention to it. what the movie actually adds. Sure. Sure. Um, T- tell I me. Mean, yeah. the, the performances I think are overall very, very sure. good. Enoch is also really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he has, he has a more minor role, but he captures that kind of like manic, weird puppy Le- dog. Like I said, Harry Dean also. Stanton, I nearly gave my Trent coin this week and then I, I decided oh, not yeah. to, but Harry Dean Stanton yeah. is, is one of my guys for sure. Perfect. He's great in Alien. But also they, they, I don't think that this is like immaculately directed. It's, it, it's fine. It's done well mm-hmm. enough, but there are a lot of good background elements and Oh, you know, here's a, a big sign that says like Jesus loves you or whatever. Kind of, it's. I mean, it's background noise. It's setting things up, mm-hmm. but it it nicely conveys the kind of environment where you know it's the American South and you're being kind of suffocated with this these mentions of God, but it's ultimately bereft and all these nasty, awful people and con men that are that are surrounding. Sure. Um, so little things like that are pretty nice. What I will mention though. Terrible score. Yeah. Really noticeably bad. Yeah. I, a lot of times it's like earthbound. Other times it's like yakety sax. Yeah, I was going to say like, Undertale, which is obviously very influenced by earthbound. It is so, which I love Undertale score to be clear. I mean, earthbound I'm sure has a pretty good score too, but does not fit this. It's like the stinking director reached into a hat every scene and came out with like an idea. It's, it, it does not help at all. No, doesn't do it too many things. I've decided um, this is not my least favorite movie we've covered. I think Flesh for Frankenstein makes me think less than this. Was this your least favorite for a for second? For a second it was. It was really close, but I finally ranked it lower. I'm going to I'm going to bump it up, but it, it and it wasn't and it was just in terms of ju- just and I don't even mean least favorite. I mean I really thought of this as like the least artistically powerful movie of all of these because it's just so like eh, against itself it comes out to a net zero because it keeps punching itself in the gut who wins a fight between you and your fist i i can't agree i think it only makes sense though because you really like true stories and this movie is basically evil true stories it is People were saying, I, I was reading reviews of this and they were like, oh, what do you get when you mix true stories and, you know, a bunch of Christian themes? You get wise blood. And I was like, all right, cool. What if true stories was on freaking crack? <laughs> what if the writers were on crack? All right. Uh, go the rankings. Yeah, let's go right into the rankings. I would like to start off. So coming in at the bottom here, we got wise blood. I, you know what? I like it better than Flesh for Frankenstein, which is my number. We have 61 movies, correct? Yeah. So this is my num. All right. All right. We're boosting it. We're boosting it a bit. It's going to come in at number 58. So it's below Blood for Dracula because Blood for Dracula is funny. And it's above uh, Walker. I think that, that that's the plane I'm putting it on of like... I, it's hard for me to think of it as a functional movie because I think that it kind of punched, like I said, it kind of punches itself in the gut. But uh, it, it 
it it has some good moments to it. Yeah, that's basically how I I come in. Uh, I I debated so much about where to place these two David Lean films, and I finally put Oliver Twist at number forty one, right above Velvet Underground, which I think is generous, and right below the Four Hundred Blows. I think it just barely edges its way there. Oliver Oliver Twist again. I think David Lean's direct direction is noticeably better in Oliver Twist, but uh, I think that the story kind of fails in comparison to Great Expectation, which is number thirty five below Shock Corridor and right above Amarcord. And then coming in number one for the week, we got my pick, of course, which is my own private Idaho. Coming in at number twenty nine. Speaking of true stories, it's right above True Stories. Uh, a movie that I really like, but I think ages a little worse every time I come to these rankings where I'm like, yeah, but it's better than true stories. Uh, and right below Raging Bull, which of course is sort of my line for, for really, you know, next level of movies. Yeah. Not a great week. No, I mean, an okay week, but not a great one by any stretch. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm probably close to there though. Obviously I have some marked differences. Uh, for me, the lowest is coming in at forty. Sorry, fifty-two. Great expectations ended up pretty low. I like it, but it's got a little bit mm. less of that David Lean charm that I that I have come to appreciate. Sure. Dialing up a little bit, Oliver Twist at forty-five. Quite a bit of a gap there, actually. But uh, you mm. know, I'm never wrong with my ranking, so whatever <laughs> it is. Uh, Wise Blood. I mean, however much I talked it up. It's still coming in below my own private Idaho, actually, which I think is appropriate. But sure. And again, it's not like they're ever going to move because I'm always correct. But it's coming right. in just below the sallow mark because it's at 32. And then wow. the at 31. Oh, that now I'm more. Look, I thought it, I was not sure if it would be above or below my own private Idaho, but I was I'm surprised that it's below the sallow mark. That's that's like a line there. It is, yeah. I mean, we got heavy hitters coming back here, though, like RoboCop, Shop Corridor, Nashville, Walkabout. Yeah. Like, which one hit, of those are you? Hit, hit, uh, Love And speaking out. of that, after Walkabout at 27, my own private Idaho at 26, just below high and low at 25. So it's in pretty wow. lofty company. It is in lofty company. I mean, I put those all higher, but except for my own private Idaho. But in terms of ranking, that, that seems appropriate. Yeah. So, uh... Let's talk next, next week. We got a we got Ooh. a really important thematically rich like I think, narrative you know going I'm, next I'm week. I'm looking at the the forecast for next week. It looks like oh some winter storms oh, at the burr. end of June. Ooh, it's gonna Bundle be up, it's gonna everybody. be pretty cold. Ooh. Uh, next week we have two films coming up in the Criterion Collection that feature some kind of coldness. So first we have Nanook of the North. A one of the first documentaries ever? Question mark. And definitely the old. I, I wanted to ask you, Sean. Can you guess any movie? There's only two movies that are older than this movie in the Criterion Collection. Can you guess either that by you know that are by spine number? Can you guess either of them? Um. Can you give me a hint and tell me what year Nanook of the North is? Because I have one guess. Nanook of the North is. 1922 so it's got a it's a really up uh, there is cabinet of dr malusi one of cabinet them? of dr caligari no oh fuck dr malusi that's another frank like fritz lang one right frank oh my lang. goodness fuck me. 
It is not it. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. It is not in the Criterion Collection. It's not. Oh, right. the Testament of Doctor Mabusi there is in go. the Criterion Collection. It is eleven years later. Fuck. There you no go. No idea. Uh, it would be uh, the kid is the 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 the, uh, the Charlie Chaplin movie. The kid is the the other one that's earlier, and then another movie I've never heard of. Not gonna tell us what it is, huh? Nope, can't remember. Can't remember what it was called. It was something about a stagecoach that uh, picks up dead people. Um, awesome. Sounds good. Sounds great. I'm sounds really excited awesome. to do that. But I, Andre I just thought Rublev. you would go straight to Andre Rublev is the other one. Um, I have not uh, checked out this director, and um, I'm excited to to dive in. Um, this is kind really? of the quintessential You've never film. Seen it, Not even by accident. Not even by accident. I worked around his filmography for a while. I have seen, I've definitely seen like scenes from Tarkovsky films. Not, not, tar, tar, yeah. Um, Tarkovsky is the cartoon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the Gendy Tar. I have seen a Tarkovsky movie. Uh, obviously, we could, who could forget. Jack, episode three. Hotel Transylvania was where I was going with that. Hotel Transylvania 3, his masterpiece. So as far um, as our picks go, yeah, I've got Icy Cold. That's got snow on the cover. Ikiru by Akira Kurosawa. It's yes. got Kanbei looking pretty fucked up. And he's I'm, sitting it, on a swing. I'm so excited about this because I'm embarrassed to have watched Livings with uh, Bill Nye uh, in a... Uh, before i saw this movie the, which is it living is the remake and uh ikiru i'm i'm just let's 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 just watch some really good cinema now uh that let's being start, said let's get started doing that <laughs> we've been meaning to for a while that being said i'm a director boy and there's one director who i've been meaning to finish the filmography of i'm almost done with all his movies and that is ang lee so we are going to be talking the ice storm uh which places uh, Tobey Maguire within the uh, Criterion Collection. It's a movie about a key party. We're excited. Super, super hyped for that. Yeah. A lot of experience we have with that. Like Yoda, I said that. Let's end the episode. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, Tune in next week for all those movies. Please share this podcast with somebody else. Uh, this episode was edited by someone, and if uh, it's important, I will say it right now. This episode was edited by... Uh, and please uh, check us out on social media. This is an Anthony Reviews podcast, so check out anthonyreviews.com, where I post reviews every once in a while, and also, uh, you know, it's just a cool place to hang out with your bros. If you're if you're all at a sleepover and you guys are have exhausted the kissing games... <laughs> <laughs> then oh, uh, go check out Anthony Who's that? Who's that coming in the end of the episode and stop you talking? Whatever you're talking about, it's Yoda. Hi, Yoda. <laughs> mm. I know we must say and the podcast we must. Kissing games we must talk about no more. Now we got wise blood. <laughs> you know, I really hate you. That's it. <laughs> We're done. <That's> <laughs> I hate myself. Uh, thanks, Yoda. <laughs>